Good day. This is the 16th edition of Free City Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. Today on the show, we're going to hear from different voices um, globally, uh, both artistic and voices of community activists. Um, so thanks for uh, tuning in and listening. Uh, it's the 16th show. We're coming out now, the beginning of each week. Um, so thanks for everybody who has subscribed so far. I really appreciate it. Um, you can find us on all the podcast platforms through searching Free City Radio. So I wanted to begin the program today uh, with a conversation I had with a local activist here in Montreal about the election in the United States across the colonial borderline. Really to look at the reasons that um, the U.S. election has such a massive impact on community activists and people all around the world. Um, looking at the U.S. election from the lens of imperialism, thinking about that critically, thinking about the fact that although the U.S. election affects us all so deeply, uh, our direct say uh, is very little in terms of the actual voting process in the United States. Of course, that plays out for people within the Canadian nation state, but also beyond. Um, so I recorded a conversation with Mustafa Hanawi, who is an organizer and a writer. Mustafa works with the Immigrant Workers Centre here in Montreal, an organization that does frontline support work for immigrant workers, for asylum seekers who are struggling for just and fair work conditions. Um, you've heard previously on the podcast um, discussion that we had uh, that was looking at the struggle for justice of Dollarama warehouse workers. That's a dollar store uh, operation in Canada and their main distribution centers in Montreal and workers there largely who are asylum seekers or non-status people, new immigrants, international students have been and continue to struggle for justice. And the Immigrant Workers Centre has been at the forefront of that fight. Given the local context of activism in Montreal, I thought it would be interesting to hear the perspective of a community organizer as to the ways that the U.S. election impacts uh, local issues here. Um, so here's the conversation with uh, Mustafa Hanawi. First of all, always about, I mean, I guess any U.S. election and just even thinking about it, you know, you know, the questions like that, it matters so much, uh, you know, to, on a personal level or on a collective level. But to many people outside of the United States, uh, it's it's really it's it's this irony that, uh, you know, the country, the great promoter of democracy uh, affects your life so much that in an election uh, you don't get to vote at the end of the day at, at the center of power uh, that you know has has power over the decisions over your life i.e. the United States right that it's yeah. still uh, that it's that important but you have no say in it living outside of of its borders uh i mean it always throws me back a little bit to to realize that you know when we you know imperialism or as a word or as an idea can seem so abstract but during election time it can feel very real right that uh you know in a way that uh 
and especially the people that I work with, uh, mostly uh, migrants and refugee claimants, uh, you know, it, it impacts their decisions on a, on a daily basis, right? And so a lot of the people that we work with, you know, who are working as essential workers and who we come in contact with, many of them are people who uh, initially wanted to stay in the United States but were afraid during the Trump years and who walked over uh, and walked the US, over the border literally well, literally walked over Roxham Road and uh, made that's us com- coming up, I'm sorry that's coming up from New York a lot of, in a lot of cases yeah New York, New Jersey uh, and people who who would have uh, intended or had stayed in the U.S. for a very long time, but were afraid and 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 came up here in those last years. And now uh, there's an irony that maybe people might even try to walk back. You know, ICE, you know, might be reined in, and that people might not be deported. So it's uh, it has a great impact in terms of the work uh, that we do here. And I think also generally, I mean, how I felt about the U.S. elections or uh, is that, I mean, I can understand the sigh of relief that everyone had in the U.S., you know, absolutely, you know, and don't live there and in terms of, of, of Trump losing and Biden winning, but I think it poses, I mean, I think it's going to make our work uh, I mean, not just harder or more complicated, but, you know, some people see it as like, oh, we'll finally get to the real issues, you know, whether it be uh, fighting systemic racism on, on a real structural level or whether we'll be able to, you know, actually fight for a Green New Deal or um, or war. But I think the liberal sort of rhetoric that comes with Biden uh, is going to have some degree of lasting power especially in the upper echelons of of society and we see that here you know with the liberal party of canada it being like the the role model of that you know that this idea that uh you can say the right things and 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 say black lives matter and justin trudeau can take a knee but then uh you still have police brutality you still have colonial violence you still have uh all of these institutions and, and structures in play that don't that don't budge, right? And so, uh, and I think, unfortunately, it's you know, it, for me, what what scares me is that um, as an activist, if we can't find a way uh, to resolve those those tensions and those dynamics, we're just gonna get a better and and more ruthless version of of Trump because to me if the victory is that we just elected a government that that's going to do the same things that created the conditions for someone like Trump to come to power uh you know this election might be a doubling down of that we're not out of and and this is my own reflection I don't think we're out of the we haven't broken out of that spiral yet, right? So in 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 uh, in terms of a kind of a globalization that uh, erodes, you know, kind of jobs and working standards and 
but at the same time, what comes with the rhetoric of, uh, you know, protectionism or sort of even like thinking through ideas of local development falls a lot of the lines in terms of like a right wing economic populism. So as a left, we haven't been able to find a way, uh, unfortunately, to 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 challenge that tension and to, and to be able to say something meaningful to people that that could ultimately provide some kind of solution right and I think that that tension is like uh for me it's universal it's not just in in the United States with Trump but uh but it's it's everywhere right it's it's in Europe it's in Latin America I mean to a certain extent it's it's here particularly here in Quebec uh, so I mean, there there comes a question in terms of, uh, you know, especially with this election, is like how do we actually deal with that? Because, uh, and I mean, the the one problem too is is that I mean, the my own other reflection, or why do I think it's important, is that uh, maybe maybe we have to come to the acceptance you know that movements had to much earlier on is that uh maybe we move away from the idea the idea that you know you govern for all the idea that you govern for all and that these political parties are going to govern for all right and that uh that there are large segments of society that hold those views and it's not you know there are structural issues of the reasons why they have those you know uh you know, right-wing, nationalist, uh, populist views, but that those sentiments aren't fringe sentiments anymore. And they belong to a large portion or a large enough minority that it's a social force, right? And so the question is, is like, how do we then also become uh, a social force, right? Because... uh, the counterweight unfortunately to that social force is is something that you hear a lot of the times is like from right-wing governments right it's like uh you know when you have that social forces being the left do you want stability do you want uh or do you want the chaos that ensues and that's what kind of the u.s election feels like do you want uh do you want chaos or do you want stability? It had nothing to do with anything Biden was saying. Is do you want stability or do you want chaos? And and that was what drove people to 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 Biden. So I think also moving away from that idea that like that there has to be some semblage of 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 stability and to say that well there is no stability for the mass of people. When you're talking about who needs stability you know, you're talking about for the sake of stock markets, the sake of, uh, you know, a, a, a globe-trotting elite. Like, they want, you know, but for everybody else, their lives are already chaos. Their home lives are chaos. Their work lives are chaos. Uh, you know, the fact that, you know, as migrants, their their lives are in chaos. So, I mean, the, the, the fact is, is that... Uh, this idea of, of 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 stability too. I mean, it's just it's interesting to watch uh, what's happening in the U.S. It actually is oddly, it's as scary as as it is almost 
refreshing in the sense that they're real politics now. No one's hiding ideas matter now, right? And whether those are are horrific ideas or whether those are progressive ideas, but uh, ideas matter. It's no longer the kind of the rhetoric of, of, of neoliberalism 30 years ago where we're just all individuals and we're all just going to make it. That's that's gone, right? Um, really? I, I mean, I think Biden is the last kick at the can at that. And the way that the centers really try to 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 surround themselves around him, whether it be from the Republican Party or for the Democratic Party, that uh, they're trying to hold on to this to this to this part or this you know early manifestation of like what neoliberalism is. But like for Trump, the idea that like there is some semblance, it, I mean. A lot of it is based around him, but it's not just, it's not a demagogic idea anymore. There is a coherent politics. There isn't, you know, a platform or a structure. Uh, in regards to, you know, that, uh, that there's a world outlook, right? Like that in the sense that, um, that like, in regards to economic nationalism, right as being like this this almost this word for not fascism right like that um you know and thus a you know in in that sense and like a very much you know economic nationalism rooted in like some like social conservative ideas uh you know that's backed by you know this idea of who is american right like this very much you know white nationalist idea of who is and what is american at this moment right so it's it's crafting this you know the 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 image of what is an american it's it's crafting an economic policy uh and and also that a, a politics right that like a grassroots politics right that uh, it's the elites that have raked you, and that you, you know, that this is the only solution is to is to build a wall, uh, is to be protectionist, is to get rid of immigrants, uh, in order to to shape, you know, I mean, whether or not that's what actually Trump does or not, that's a very different thing. Why? Uh, you know, for me, I think Trump was. I mean. You know, a lot of what Trump has done, and it's not like it, a lot of people commented on it, is that I, I, I think that like Trump, uh, kind of to a certain degree, did what the establishment wanted. He did. He was their guy. You know, he lowered tax rates. It was a, it was a continuity in immigration policy with some slight, slight changes to appease the base, but. By no means is it any different than what Bush or uh, Obama... I mean, it, all the way back to Reagan, that, like, there's a coherency in what they've been trying to do with immigration policy in the U.S., right? And so Trump is no no, no different uh, in that regard. Uh, in terms of uh, foreign policy, it's not the whole establishment, but, you know, in terms of removing the JC... You know, the... You know, 
you know, putting back sanctions on Iran was very much in line with the Republican Party. Uh, what they were doing to Venezuela is no different than, you know, and, and Bolivia was no different than, than past administrations. Uh, so I think that Trump did what he wa- like what the establishment wanted, but I think the establishment abandoned him because they thought he was too much of a risk. But now he he remains. Unfortunately, I think his legacy is not that he that he lost. I don't even if he did actually lose, but because he didn't lose in the way that everyone thought he lost. Uh, you know, I, I, in some ways, you know, people around him are gonna say that he didn't lose, even if he even if they concede, you know, eventually. Uh, to defeat to Biden, but the fact that he got more votes than Obama did is is is, is on his platform is significant, and so I mean I think that worries me in terms of uh, our activism here. You know, does I mean not so much about the fringe right or or the right wing, but how do we deal with the bigger politics that are enabling this? Right, I think that's the question. I mean, the, 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 the thing for me is that you know a lot of people maybe are going to say as activists we have to target the people that are really going to hold up you know that kind of politics, whether it be like the Proud Boys or the far right. But uh, those things are just little branches on a bigger tree, right? That like have to get rooted out. So I think, uh, I mean, to me, I think that's one of the biggest uh, reflections and, 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 and lessons. And I mean, also things that we have to, we have to restart back the clock, you know, uh, because of the way Trump presented a lot of what he did. You know, you have almost people on the left being like, free trade is good, free trade is progressive. Right, we have unions defending trade agreements. No one was protesting the renegotiation of NAFTA to say no NAFTA. People were trying to defend NAFTA, and so I mean that's just one. Or you know that's like one moment of like that that kind of bigger politics, right? Like you know, how do we come out and say that? How do we challenge capitalism and all its ills now again as a left? Without it being protectionist. I mean, to me, I think that's one big question. I think that we that we really have to deal with. And then, I mean, also is the... And, and and again, I mean, and if we can, that might help us tackle the question of, like, how do we fight, like, uh, systemic racism in a way that also just doesn't lose, uh, you know, that isn't about, uh, that could bring together, you know, working people who are, you know, like, in a way that, how to make those connections in other parts of the population that have been, uh, you know, that that have been disregarded by the left, right? And with those 
you know, but with those anti-racist politics, right? We have to chip away at that. We have to win those people over. And it's not, it's not because it's just simply tactical, because it's our politics too. You know, so, uh, you know, so kind of a universal politics again, right? Like, but that can help support address anti-racist uh, struggles at the same time. It's a challenge. It's not easy. But, I, you know, I think for me that's also like another another big reflection. And I think if it can happen maybe, you know, soon, soon you know, within, within the Biden years, uh, you know, maybe in a position that will like, can begin to challenge that, you know, liberal, neoliberal politics and also diminish the far right. Uh... Yeah, I mean, but it, it's, it, I mean, it is probably one of the most important elections and it's a micro, it's a big microcosm for, I think, for activists everywhere in terms of uh, how we think th- through the, you know, the, the future. That was a conversation with uh, Mustafa Hanawi, um, who is an organizer at the Immigrant Workers Center. And uh, it was great to talk with uh, Mustafa for the Free City Radio Show. This is our 16th edition. Thanks for listening. Um, I'm Stefan Christoph. Next, I want to feature a track of music that I love. This is a rendition of Baltimore by the Tamilans.
That was the track Baltimore by the Tamalins here on Free City Radio. Um, thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, uh, Stefan Christoph. Uh, this is the 16th edition of the show. It is Tuesday, the 17th of November, 2020. Um, next, I wanted to go to a conversation that I uh, recorded with an activist who's based in Sweden, uh, Benjamin Ladra, uh, who has initiated a number of really incredible projects um, to raise awareness about human rights in Palestine. I was really struck by the work that Benjamin Ladra and friends have done. Uh, one of these actions was to actually to walk from Sweden to Palestine uh, and, and use that opportunity to talk with people across that journey. Um, this past summer, they actually biked all around Sweden, the entire country, um, to raise awareness about this issue. And they're planning upcoming actions. What I really liked and what I really connected with and I thought was interesting and important and inspiring about this project was the fact that the initiative really focused on the human scale. Um, the fact that this was an opportunity to talk with people outside of the silos of social media and to really engage in the physical world uh, around a critical issue of our time, the human rights of Palestinians. So here's our conversation. Sure, so my name is uh, Benjamin Badra. Uh, I'm a Swedish Algerian a human rights activist. The project we did was called uh, Bike for Gaza. At this moment, there's a lot of online activism. There's a lot of discussion, and this is positive, about Palestinian human rights, about different struggles for justice around the world. Why at this time did you feel it was so important to physically go to different communities in Sweden to talk with people face-to-face? -face? I mean, there's the context of the pandemic also. So a lot of people are thinking about the importance of human interaction. I know that this project extends before the pandemic and also during the pandemic, the situation has been d different in Sweden. Can you talk about why you took that decision to communicate in, in that sort of face-to-face -face way to talk about these human rights issues and particularly the situation in Gaza? Sure, and of course I'd like to mention that we took all the precautions, not getting too close to people, keeping our distance and trying to keep our hygiene, washing our hands, etc. But I really believe that uh, there's such a huge difference between meeting somebody and talking to them rather than uh, putting out a Facebook post or putting up a YouTube video or whatever. Um, especially when it comes to important issues like these, uh, like it's a cause that's very far away from Swedish people. You know, Palestine is most people don't know where it is, and uh, to be able to care about people, like it's not on the other side of the world, but in some sense it is. Um, you need a deep engagement. You can't just uh, see a Facebook post about it and expect that to raise, you know, a level of engagement that would be longer than the five seconds or so, or one second it takes to glance at a post. But if you have a longer conversation, um, and if you establish a human connection, that's really what I think is needed to uh, at least give a longer connection and a longer engagement uh, a chance. Um, so that was very important for us. And uh, also it, it worked, you know, in terms of we can measure some results. A lot of people donated money. We managed to raise $20,000, and a lot of that came from the people that we met on the road. So you biked from community to community to talk with people in Sweden about what's happening in Gaza. 
Um, why was this a priority for you? Why was it so important to to take the time to do this? I mean, Gaza is under siege, so I'm I'm wondering if you could talk about this and why why you felt it was so urgent, especially in this time in this context where, although the situation remains very urgent in Gaza, it's not in the headlines. Palestine and the situation in Gaza is always on the top priority and. In my list, together with other cases as well, Western Sahara, for example, is another case I'm very engaged in. And uh, as you mentioned, Gaza is under siege, it's under a blockade, and actually the United Nations itself went out with a report a few years ago saying that Gaza would be unlivable by 2020, and now we are seeing the end of 2020. You know, when they say unlivable, that's just, that's not just a metaphor. Uh, there's a lack of clean water, there's a lack of food, there's a lack of health care. And uh, when you see a country like Sweden struggle so much under a pandemic, now we have a good welfare system, we're a rich country, we have all our institutions very strong in place, but we are still overwhelmed by this pandemic and struggling in many cases. Then imagine Gaza, imagine a place which uh, doesn't have those institutions in place, a place where you can't even uh, fish in your own waters because there's a military blockade. So it's extremely important for me, for us, we were a big group. Uh, we were 12 people at the start, but then a few of us dropped off. But still, we, uh, a few of us managed to get all the way. It was a tough journey. And uh, if, it, if, if we didn't think it was important, and extremely important at that, I don't think we would have ever made this journey, because it was a very tough, tough experience, as well as wonderful. But uh, physically and mentally, uh, it was challenging to get uh, through the entire country of Sweden. It's a big country, bigger than most people think. So we didn't follow highways uh, because that would have been uh, dangerous. Sometimes we wound up on the highway, but that's not a place you want to bike. But we biked all the way up north. There's a place called like the National Border, which is our furthest northern border with Norway. That was our ending point, Abisko, if anyone is familiar. And we started down in Gothenburg. Now that's not even the southernmost tip of Sweden. But it still was 2,000 kilometers and took a long time. And about half of that journey was in northern Sweden, where we also have our indigenous community, which for those of you that don't know is called the Sami community in the country of Sápmi. And uh, we have our fair share of stories of uh, colonization and occupation and oppression of our indigenous people here in Sweden. So we wanted to meet with them and highlight that as well on the journey. So we were carrying both the Palestinian flag and the uh, Sami flag on our bikes. Um, so this project we did was called Bike for Gaza. And I guess you can find some videos and stuff. Four with, a, with the number four. Thank you. Um, I've heard of numerous initiatives um, of people getting together on a community-based level to draw attention to the situation in occupied Palestine and in regards to Palestinian human rights through bike trips, some of my friends in Lebanon have done something similar between the oh, yeah. um, refugee camps in Lebanon. They do it that right. every, every May um, to oh. highlight uh, the displacement of Palestinian refugees through the creation of the Israeli state in 1948. Um, I guess I would just ask you um, this sort of, human scale of the of the bicycle um you know it's it's only been in the last 15 20 years that really you know the bicycle has become at least in in a lot of countries like sweden or canada 
has again become something that people respect uh, from a perspective of ecology and health. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was wondering if you could reflect a bit on the bicycle as a tool um, and humanity's relationship to the bicycle and why this relates to the question of Palestine for you. Sure. So I think there's something very profound and powerful in moving with the force of uh, your own body, whether it's walking or biking. You know, you're getting forward, and there's uh, it's all uh, you, and that's something people can relate to. And I think when we're doing these projects, also it's very easy to meet with people, and everybody can, uh, you know, when they see you on the road, they saw a bunch of people with bikes, and everyone had a huge Palestine flag. It creates uh, natural spaces for interaction. People will stop and ask, hey, what's that flag? What are you doing? And then uh, you open up these spaces for conversation on Palestine, which otherwise wouldn't exist. I mean, uh, you can't do a project like this in cars, for example, I don't believe. It would <laughs> it would be much shorter. It would just take a day or two. And people don't stop cars asking them where they're going. So I think it's the same with walking. And uh, I had a similar experience when I walked from uh, Sweden to Palestine a couple of years ago, which was a 5,000-kilometer journey through 14 countries. And uh, it was the same experience as biking, in the, in the sense that you will meet so many people on the road, and everyone can, or most people know what it's like to bike or what it's like to walk. So when you say what you're doing, where you're going, and why, um, that's something profound that makes an impact on people, and that's very important, I think. It seems that you're very focused on the human scale. Yes, <laughs> I guess mm. you can say that. Um, it gives an opportunity for interaction that's very dig- different from the digital realm. Yeah, I mean, you can have conversations, of course, in comments and in the DM section, the message section. It's just not the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and just finally, um, can you just underline again why... Um, you wanted to bring attention to Gaza and also that you were raising funds uh, for for Gaza and why it's important that people continue to think about and to take action if they can uh, in regards to the Palestinian human rights of the people of Gaza. Absolutely. So the Palestinian people have been, uh, as I'm sure most of you are aware, under under occupation by Israel for now 72 years. And uh, the Palestinians in Gaza in particular are suffering terribly, uh, especially in regards to the inhumane blockade, which uh, David Cameron called the world's biggest open-air prison uh, a couple of years back. The situation in Gaza is just uh, unbelievable. It's a, it's a shame on our human family that... Uh, that we still allow this to happen. And I think it's up to us also uh, to put the pressure that's needed to stop it. Because I don't believe that Israel will just cease the blockade by by the good of its heart. If it wanted to do that, it would have done so already. So you have two million people, and uh, it's just 40 kilometers on the long side and a few kilometers. So it's like a square. And uh, you know, we biked 2,000 kilometers. That would have been up and down Gaza so many times. And one day we biked 100 kilometers. So the people in Gaza that are biking, they can't even, you know, spend a full day biking in one direction because they would come to the fence. And if they, if they would try to uh, leave, then uh, that's associated with lethal danger because there are Israeli soldiers on the other side of that fence. They would shoot you if you try to leave. And we should remember that uh, 70% of the Palestinian people in Gaza, they're not originally from Gaza, but they're from other places in Palestine. 
and they have been displaced and made, turned into refugees and fled to Gaza. And they want to get back, of course, to their homes, uh, which is in Palestine, other parts of Palestine. And uh, they have not been allowed to do so for the entirety of the conflict, if we say that it began in 47, 48, of course, is an entire history before that as well. And we can never forget about them. Uh, we shouldn't let media uh, decide what we care about, and uh, we shouldn't let them influence our attention too much. Uh, it doesn't. It never gives you a clear picture anyway when uh, the media, most mainstream media here in the West, uh, talks about Palestine. We should listen to the Palestinian people. We should read human rights reports. You know, go and read what uh, Beth Salem has to say, a very good Israeli human rights organization. Listen to what. Uh, breaking the silence uh, former Israeli soldiers had to say about what they have done during the occupation. <laughs> First and foremost, listen to the Palestinian people themselves. And uh, there's an ongoing cry for help. We need international pressure. And for you in your Canadian context, I believe the Canadian government can do a lot. And uh, me and my friends, my community here in Sweden, are trying to pressure the Swedish government and other governments to do what we can as well. At least we recognized Palestine in 2014. That's one small step. But uh, it's a humanitarian disaster in Gaza every day. And now we have the pandemic on top of that. It's just unthinkable and uh, undescribable. But I can't do it justice with words. I don't think words can do these kinds of cases justice. And uh, I would go there myself if I could, but it's under blockade. Nobody can go, more or less. Uh, I would just encourage everybody to uh, learn more about what's happening there. And don't stop with knowledge and awareness. This is very key as well. And this is why I think the human context is so important. Um, awareness in itself is not the goal. The goal is uh, tangible results for the people in Palestine. And awareness is just one of the steps to get people to become active. And we need our governments to put pressure. and. Uh, there are all sorts of actors, actually, that can put some pressure. The BDS is a very good campaign, the Boycott, Investment, and Sanctions campaign. You can choose not to buy uh, products from the Israeli settlements or all Israeli products if you choose. That's up to you. And uh, you can influence your local localities. There's the Presbyterian Church in the, the US, I know. When I was there, they uh, signed the BDS charter, which I think uh, was very impressive. I cut their ties with Israel, more or less. So there's different communities, different ways you can engage. And this is one of the questions of our time. It should be on the top of everyone's agenda, if you ask me. Um, our organization is called Solidarity Rising. And we have an upcoming project, which is to raise awareness about Western Sahara, another case of uh, occupation, displacement, and human rights violations of its, the grossest kinds. Uh, where myself and uh, hopefully a few others will uh, bike all the way from Japan to Western Sahara for 40,000 kilometers. It will take quite some time, and uh, we are ready to start once the pandemic is over. That was Benjamin Ladra, uh, who is an activist based in Sweden. I thought that the initiative they've taken to highlight the human rights of the Palestinian people was really important and the tactics that they used to manifest this urgency concerning the situation in Palestine through walking through communities, through biking through communities, through that human scale I thought was really important to highlight. 
This is Free City Radio. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Stefan Kristoff. Now I wanted to go to a piece of music by Mario Bratkovic, um, an awesome accordion player.
That was Mario Bratkovic, uh, who's an awesome uh, accordion player based in Switzerland. Um, and I've always been really drawn to Mario's work. Uh, Mario is an artist from Bosnia uh, who has lived in Switzerland for many years in the city of Bern. Um, I was really inspired by Mario Bratkovic's work um, as a Balkan musician, his sound, his original take on the accordion, the percussive, inspiring way it's played. It's very unique, very awesome. So I called Mario Anburn in Switzerland. So, okay, uh, my name is Mario Batkovic. I play accordion, but I really don't know what I really do there because uh, I have no style. <laughs> and I really try to not have style, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, when I play music, um, I'm not interested in any kind of, of, of uh, going in a way, musically way, uh, because for me, the music is the only one really freedom space where you are free. And um, I, I like to say many times that I saw many borders, uh, physically, mental borders, uh, political borders, um, social borders, mm -hmm. any any kind of borders, and I don't want to have these borders uh, in the music. So this is uh, why I'm totally out of any style. I love heavy metal, Johann Sebastian Bach. I love uh, classical music. I love folk music. I really love any kind of uh, sound. There is only one thing uh, how I change the music. Um, it's uh, there's two ways to make music for me. Two styles. The one is the true and the lie music. Mm -hmm. So and I try in my life to do to true music. But it's a challenge. Of course, you told me that in in Switzerland in Bern, um, you this is this is your home. You've been there since 1991. Um, yes. You corrected me when I said that you're a Balkan musician. You said that <laughs> I'm a musician from Switzerland. But I would imagine that both are important to you. Can you talk about that journey? You had mentioned being involved yeah. in movements against racism for the rights of immigrants and how that that was part of your identity and became part of your assertion of, of a Swiss identity as a Balkan person. Yeah, you know, like, you have to know, like, that um, uh, there is a song from a... Bosnian guy, he was always say it's too early to be lucky and too late to be sad. And I was taking this as my uh, my joke in Switzerland to say it's too early to be a Swiss guy and too late to be a Bosnian guy. Um, this is so uh, you are always between all this stuff. But when we speaking about my music, because I don't like to 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 look on my biography, but we must do that because that's the way. Um, it, you know, like I can't, I can't run away from my Bosnian, uh, how say, uh, beginning to, to life in Balkan, but I can also run away from 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 baroque music or classical music, and I cannot run away from metal because that was that what I was persons who I meet in my life. You know, I, I have to move a lot in my life. And any time when I came somewhere, it was a new society. And this society tell me what is 
right in the culture way and what mm -hmm. is wrong. Mm -hmm. And in the beginning, I was understand. So when I come in Switzerland, the young people tell to me, we listen hip hop. I never listened hip hop before. So I was thinking, okay, that's the right thing. Mm -hmm. Don't listen anymore Balkan music, listen hip hop. But and then I moved to the next part. And there was people who listen rock music and thinking hip hop is shit. You know, and when I, I was, I didn't understand why they hate each other. And when I go to the classical uh, school, they don't like anything which is not classical, you know. Mm. And for me, it was very crazy mm. to, 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 to understand why these people hate each other in a way, in a musical way, which is so peaceful. Mm. Why, why I cannot go with you tonight mm. to a beautiful folk music party mm -hmm. and we enjoy that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why we cannot go to an electronic mm -hmm. concert, improvised music, abstract music? Mm -hmm. Why not? And for me, I, 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 I saw so many societies which anyone thinking they have, they know what is the right and what is wrong. Mm -hmm. And for me, nobody was right and no wrong. And me too, you know, like I, I'm also like that no well well my friend if you could talk about that um because you um you mentioned one of the first things you told me was the fact that you um be became swiss because at that time in the in the 1990s there was a big anti-racist movement in switzerland i'm just wondering what do you remember from that and how was that important for you as a balkan person i I was remembering as an immigrant in Switzerland uh, that I, I, I do a lot of stuff, you know, like 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 um, uh, there was many things like anti-racism weeks or newspaper journalists, you know, mm -hmm. and and anyone wanna see me as the Balkan punk, you know, like the guy who is like some a little bit different and not typical Bosnian, and. Uh, and I was really into this this film, this movie, to, to give everything, to show the people, hey, we are also humans. But then I understand that you are really a victim. I was a victim for myself. And that was the point when I was like, hey, man, I'm here since 30 years. Mm. You know? And, and I don't want to go... Uh, you are not from another country, but I don't want to go anytime to the Swiss radio or a TV show and explain them mm. what is to be a Boston guy in Switzerland. Mm. Because I am here. I have I am here since 30 years. Mm. I, I have my studio here. I have my friends here. I love this city. For me, this is the city, beautiful city in the world. And and yeah. I don't want to move anywhere from here, mm. you know. And 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 uh, I. I I would say, like, I, I really into this city. I'm a part of this town, and I hope I can stay my whole life. But what I don't want to be is always the, 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 the stranger in this town, mm. you know? And, and that was some things, like, um, you put it on yourself. Mm. Like, when you are, you're screaming all the time, I'm a stranger, I'm a stranger, you know? Mm. And that is what I don't want. I want to make music for my town, which is coming from Bern. So my source is this room you see now in the video here. That is my source. Then all my instruments. It's the same with my music. When you listen to my accordion sing, then yes. you're thinking I'm an accordion player, but I'm not. Mm -hmm. I'm a musician first who play the accordion. Hey, hey, hey. You know? 
So for me, it doesn't matter. I can take a guitar and play it, but I will need 30 years to practice <laughs> to come to this level. You know what I mean? So uh, the, 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 the people try always to put you in a case and, and to tell yeah. you who you are. Oh, oh, oh. And my biggest fight in my life was to try to not have this case, to be free as a human mm. with anyone, just to love humans and to love people. Mm. Thank you uh, for sharing that. I really appreciate it. So your sound, it's, I mean, breathtaking, like the emotion of the journey that we go on when we hear your music. It's like uh, cosmic. So you're mixing on the accordion. You have the rhythm section, the bass section, and the treble section, and the midsection, and it's all coming from you. And I notice you have no pedals, no gear. No. Please explain. No. <laughs> I can't explain it. You know, for me, <laughs> for me the, the, the accordion is the first real analog synthesizer without electricity. This is my point of view of this instrument. And so the problem is how you can do that, you know. And, and, and the problem was also when in the early years, when I was teenager and young, I play always my shit, you know. I was always playing my music. But it was like forbidden. The people tell me, no, no, don't play that. Play tango, play Balkan music, play Swiss folk music, mm. German music, mm -hmm. play uh, French uh, jazz waltz and whatever. Mm -hmm. But don't do that. And I say, no, no, it's okay. Mm. And because nobody do it before, uh, oh, I have oh. to break the ice, you mm -hmm. know. Mm -hmm. And a long time, the people was logging about me. But I remember when I was studying classical music, I take the the buttons C and G, and they just play it, and it was you you hear it when you slowly play it, and you like then you hear the waves, you know, and I was for hours obsessed of this sound, and there was always the Russian guys and the Bosnian guys, and and and, and the, the, the the Italy guys were coming and say to me, hey, play real music, you just put two buttons. And I was like, no, no, this is music for me, you know. And they didn't, they didn't believe that it's music, you know. And so I have to take a long time to develop that. And then I, I use the technique of the classical school. Um, I use a technique for the free improvised stuff, you know, where you are free. I use it technically from... Uh, crowd rock analog synthesizers and the soul, the dynamic of the Balkan, you know. Uh, and it was not easy, but then I, I, I uh, discovered all these kind of styles and put it in. I was just playing it, I was not thinking about that. But then was the biggest problem how to record this music. Then was starting the big fight with my sound engineer, <laughs> and there is a nice joke with a like to say about us but it's a little bit true we was drinking one and a half year beer to know that we need three microphones on the end <laughs> so we spend a lot of time to thinking how to pick up the accordion because the problem with the accordion is this instrument has a lot of handicaps yeah Okay, okay. And uh, noises and everything, like, mm -hmm. like the bad, you know, everything. Yeah. And you hear all the, jo the joints, yeah. 
yeah, when you put close to mics, mm. then you have all these noises. Mm -hmm. And for me, uh, I was remembering then on a friend, he's blind and he don't see, but he hear better and he smell better than anyone who I know. And I was thinking the same with this instrument. When it has this handicaps, there must be another side which make the instrument better than anyone else, you know? And that is why I try. Um, uh, and let's say that there was much, much love for this instrument. Uh, and I was ready to do everything mm -hmm. to, to make this sound. I feel that today it's a very interesting moment. I, I, I very much appreciate what you said about the fact that, you know, as as a, a resident of Bern, as a Swiss person, you are very focused on claiming that identity. I respect that. I also feel today there's a interesting moment for this generation and even younger, a bit younger, maybe Gen Z, of Balkan people around the world it seems that there's a awakening, you know, there's many artists, there's maybe people who are not doing Balkan culture, but are, are asserting, you know, a singer like Dua Lipa has nothing to do with mm. Balkan music no. overtly. However, no. however, no. as a person, she speaks about her heritage in a proud way. You know, it's not with shame, you know, and talks about uh, Kosovo, talks about, I mean, this is just a, an example in the pop world. But, you know, I'm seeing also a lot of uh, films, a lot of um, experiments, mm -hmm. uh, experimental work, uh, you know. Um, but mm -hmm. you must agree to me, there is a little difference between these Balkan roots. Uh, because what I do private here in my studio with my friends, of course, I take the bottle of Slivovitz <laughs> and I, 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 I take my accordion as we screaming all Bosnian songs the whole night. But this is private. You know what I mean? Mm. This is my private story. It's my mm. private life and my private roots. Mm. I don't choose to be born there. But I love it and I can't mm. run away. Mm. But this is not my brand. And I, I always try to be a free musician mm -hmm. and to be independent with my music. Because what I, I don't believe in styles. I believe, I believe in sound, sound aesthetic. I believe in, in, in quality of one tone. And I don't want any, no one time in my life, I, I don't want to play a tone which mm -hmm. I don't really love with my full heart. You know? And this is something which is universal. It's not, it's not sure. some things which you can put on a on a country you know or, hey, or, hey, hey, hey. or, or this and I, I the reason i think why you have at the moment a lot of young people from from these countries which development uh, were more open-minded let's say is some things with the change after the war there was this generation of old people handcraft people which is also my family and then the younger generation understand the world is not only Balkan. There is much more. And they also start to open-minded a little bit, you know. Because I know, I think, if I will be in these ages, like, no, in the 80s, where was the communism, I think I will have a lot of trouble with the government. <laughs> you know? 
sure. It's also it's also time yeah. that we can show something. And and the good thing is uh, the humans learning. You know, they're learning to development. And these people learning something that that the world is much bigger than only in Bosnia. You know. Thank you, my but friend. I love I love to, to go there. You know, I really love the people there and the humans. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. That was a conversation with Mario Bratkovic, uh, who is an accordion player based in Bern, Switzerland, originally from Bosnia. I wanted to highlight an awesome Balkan musician here on Free City Radio, given my roots in the Balkans. Um, so thanks for tuning in. It is the 17th of November. I'm your host, Stefan Christoph. You can subscribe to Free City Radio through Apple Podcasts, please do. Tell your friends if you like it. You can contact me about anything, stefan.christoff, if you have show ideas or feedback on Free City Radio. Um, thanks again for listening. We're going to finish the show today with another piece of music by Mario Bratkovic. This has been Free City Radio. <laughs>